The illustration that John uses here at the beginning of this chapter of his gospel calls you to a close union with Christ. John is moved by the Spirit to deal with the heart of Christian life and bringing Jesus' words to us that speaks of the need that we be connected to the source of Christian life if we are to live as Christians. Now, before we get into this, let me note there's a temptation to try to find much more in these figures of speech than is intended in them. There's a temptation to expend our human ingenuity trying to find hidden, hidden meanings and the meaning of this particular word or this particular word. and, this, and get. Uh, we forget that the Bible is written in ordinary language. It was written in the common Greek of the day, the New Testament, not the uh, classical Greek. When you try to decode the Bible as if it were a cryptogram, you get all kinds of weird and contradictory results. People go wild with that. Too often people have approached these illustrations as if each small aspect of it had some hidden meaning. Instead of being a means of simplifying our understanding, it is turned into a terrible complication. I want you to see that John's message here is very simple. You need to stay close to Jesus. That's it in a few words. You need to be attached to Jesus like a branch needs to be attached to the vine that it's a part of. Without Jesus, you have no strength or no life. It's put here in pictorial language to make it easy for you to see that and grasp it and understand it. So we're talking this afternoon about abiding in Christ. And again, three points. You're made by God to bear fruit. We talked this morning about being created in God's image, but now we see one purpose of that is that you bear fruit. No fruit without Christ. Second point. You can't do it all by yourself. You can't even begin to do it all by yourself. And as you bear fruit, finally, you will find you enjoy Christ's blessing. You're walking with him. You're made by God to bear fruit. And your fruit, let's be very clear, your fruit is your obedience to God. People often want to get in here and say, well, fruit means new Christians and uh, the gospel spreading, the church multiplying and growing. Here, at least, that's not the meaning. Newly, new believers may indeed be gained through our obedience, but that's not what this is about. It's about our obedience, simply. The fruit of the vine here plainly is a symbol for your deeds of obedience to, to God, for the actions that spring from your devotion to Jesus Christ. Jesus himself explicitly relates it to obedience. In verse 10, he says, If you keep my commandments, that's obedience, you will abide in me, in my love. The meaning of obedience in this is implicit in the description of what God does to those who bear no fruit. No deeds of obedience mean you're cast out for sin. All those who are saved by Christ do his works, at least to some extent, and growingly as we walk with him. It's also implicit in the description of the Father's work in caring for the vine as he cuts the evil away to purify us 
to make us stronger against the idea that this is something about church growth. Failure to have many converts is not evil to be cast away. Let me illustrate that. Uh, some time ago, we were looking at an evangelistic program, and it was described by a man whose business was a sales manager, actually, for a big company. And he would send out salesmen to travel around to retailers to sell their goods to them. And he, he said he didn't tell his salesmen to make so many sales a week. What he told them to do was to visit a given number of potential customers each week. The difference? They could control how many visits they make. They could not control what those customers decided to do. And he said, I want you to do the work, which is go out to talk to people, go out to talk to people, go out to talk to people. And if you do that, the, the sales will come. In the same way, God tells us to witness and to witness and to witness, talk to people, tell them. He's the one who changes their hearts. We can't. You can take the world's best evangelist and put him beside somebody who's just about ready to become a Christian and he cannot change that person's heart. He can tell him. He can perhaps tell him better than any of us could tell him. But it's God who has to change his heart in the end. Our task is to tell people what we know of Jesus Christ. And I stress what you know of Jesus Christ. You don't have to have... Uh, three seminary degrees and uh, what have you, to be, to be able to tell people about Christ. You tell them as much as you know. If you don't know an answer to a question, tell them I'll try to find out and get back to you. Talk to your pastor. Talk to other older Christians who may know about it. Our failure to tell people is sin. It's evil to be cut away. Failure to make converts is not. God is telling you here, Jesus is telling you here, that God cuts away the things in your old sinful nature that hold you back from being obedient, that hold you back from being fruitful, so that you will grow in obedience, so you will be fruitful. Your purpose in life, put it a little different way, is to glorify God. We're called to obey God to bring him glory. 1 Corinthians 10, 13 says, do all to the glory of God. Whatever you're doing, do it in such a way that you glorify God. Our church has a catechism for, supposedly for young people. It's become a catechism for those who really know a lot in our slipped days. But uh, the shorter catechism, the first question is, what is the chief man of man? Who knows it? Man's chief end is to glorify God. And enjoy him forever. And the catechists writing this 400 years ago looked in the Bible and they saw that this is the pur our purpose in life is to bring glory to our Lord and Savior. It's a meaningful, meaningful purpose for every human being. There is no one on earth who is not able to do that if they walk with Christ. It doesn't matter how smart you are, how foolish. How strong you are, how weak, how fit you are, how crippled you may be, you can glorify God. We'll get more to that later. You're to live in a way which brings God glory. And Jesus uses this illustration to explain how that works. By this, my Father is glorified, he says, that you bear much fruit. Think of a garden. I told you my wife's a gardener, so I think of gardens. The best garden 
is the one that shows off God's skill best. A vineyard is a kind of garden, remember. A gardener shows you her garden, and it's a mess. The rows are irregular. Some of the plants are stunted and dry. The colors clash with one another. They're all through it. There are weeds. It's half devoured by insects. You look at that and say, whoa, is she ever good? No, I don't think so. But if you go to her garden, it's clean, it's beautiful, it's got colors that fit together and are attractive. She brings baskets of vegetables and flowers to share in the church. She shows her glory as a gardener. She shows how good she is as a gardener by that. And that shows how you best glorify God. You glorify him by showing the fruit of his work in, his li- in your life, by showing how he has changed you and shaped you to do what is good, what is pleasant, what's attractive. Let me stress that great works are not the issue. I told you you could do this whether you're weak or strong, smart or foolish. You can still do this. Most Christians especially when they first become Christians, but it, most of us, it still continues, want to do something great for God, to really do something that is wonderful, that really advances his kingdom, that really shows off his glory. And that's natural and okay, no complaint about that, but you need to remember some other things. Jesus pointed out to his disciples a woman, a widow, who put a tiny, tiny little gift in the offering box at the temple, pennies in our terms. You remember what he said about her? Luke 21, verse 3 and 4, he said, This poor widow has put in more than all, for all these out of their abundance have put in offerings for God, but she out of her poverty put in all the livelihood she had. You get that? She didn't do something great for God. She did a tiny little bit, but Jesus said it was the best because she was giving her all to God. All the great works do is to make you stand out more for better or for worse. Perhaps you might be somebody who has architectural skills and you could design and, find and build a building that's more beautiful than the Taj Mahal. I don't know if it still was said, but it was said when I was young, at least that the Taj Mahal is the most beautiful building existing on earth. You know, suppose you can design one that's better, more beautiful, and build it. Then, if everyone who deals with you finds you humble, and kind, and honest, and caring, you exalt God. But if everyone who works on the project comes to despise you, then you have failed utterly to glorify God. If your accomplishment fills you with pride in your accomplishments, you don't glorify God, you glorify yourself. Well, there's an element of God perhaps in showing the possibilities of his creation, but it's not for his glory. The, beautiful, uh, the, the beauty of the building is small compared to the bad witness, the ugliness of your life. It becomes that way. 
On the other hand, well, not on the other hand, the witness of your life is magnified by the greatness of the project, for good or for worse. Because you get something that special and you're going to have it all through the news media. And uh, big time, your ugliness or your humility and love will show all over the world because of that. Just because the project is big. On the other hand, if you build a simple little house, nothing special, and every workman who works on it admires your kindness and generosity, every contractor you deal with finds you wise and honest, then you glorify God, even though it's not a great thing you're doing. If your love for construction halts, means that if your love for God means that construction halts on the Lord's day, People see your delight in God. Your obedience to God brings him glory as much in small things as in great. It means we all can do it. Jesus here condemns those who are without fruit. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he, that's the Father, takes away. He takes it out, cuts it out, it's gone. Those who bear no fruit have no real place in Jesus Christ. You may seem to be part of the church, but you're not if you're not walking in obedience to him, at least to some degree. God will remove you if that's your situation. There's, you should understand there's a sense people can be in Christ while having no real part in him. They can be visibly part of his church, baptized, claiming to be Christian, Perhaps even work miracles in his name, we're told in Matthew 7, 22. But in the judgment, he will proclaim, I never knew you. Matthew 7, 23. That's a scary thought, if you think about it. You can't sort of say, I'm doing this or that for Christ, so I'm okay. That, does, that's, that doesn't cut it. What you do for Christ doesn't save you. But it's easy to see where you stand. Is your heart focused on Christ? Or is it focused on getting to heaven? You. Do you love him and so try to please him? Then you're safe in his hands. Or are you just looking to gain yourself, earn yourself a ride to heaven and whatever benefits you can get? Is your goal in life to get on with life as it is while you claim Christ for forgiveness and reward in the life to come without having to do anything much. Then you have not yet connected to Christ if that's where you stand. When you come to Jesus Christ, his love fills you. And you begin to live for him, not for yourself. You love him so much you want to do the things he tells you to do. It's in a small way, we're told, the Bible tells us this illustration the love of a man and a woman for them in a marriage. You love your boyfriend now, perhaps, or your husband, your girlfriend now, or your husband, and you try to do the things that please him. You love Christ, you try to do the please, the things that please him because you love him. Friends, here, if you have never before turned to Christ and said, forget all this stuff about me, I want you. Cleanse me and keep me. 
Ask him now. Ask him to take you and to shape you to be like him, to be part of his vine. Don't go without that. Don't miss that blessing. Our goal is to glorify God by bearing fruit. And you can't do that without Christ. That's the second point. No fruit. No vine, no fruit. He's the vine. He's the true vine. We read about in Isaiah about Israel as the vine. And we see other places in the Old Testament. In each case, the writer goes on to tell us that Israel was faithless. And is going to be uprooted. Is going to be punished. Against this Old Testament background, Jesus presents himself as the true vine, the real vine, the one that's well-rooted, the one that's strong and good. Here in the beginning of this chapter, he's the faithful servant of God. He's the only source of life. He's the redeemer for God's fallen people. In John 14, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. There are not many ways to God. As people will tell you, there are today all over the place. There are not many ways to God. There is one only, and that's Jesus Christ. Without him, you're lost. That means that only as you come in Christ can you have any fruit with God, any life. You can never fulfill your potential Unless you turn to Christ, unless you cling to Christ, you've been made so you can do things which glorify God. And you're never going to achieve that without Christ. Understand what this means. When I was younger, it was said that the only people at that time who could win Olympic gold in sprints were American blacks. And why could they easily beat their counterparts in Africa with a similar DNA? Well, the answer was very simple. They got fed better. They got fed. They got the best diet available in the world, you know, in the time. And they grew taller and stronger and faster. And no one else could win the sprints at that time. Their bodies could grow to achieve their true potential. And so it is for you. Unless you are being fed by Christ. You'll never be the person you were made to be. You won't live up to your spiritual DNA. So put your trust in Christ. Cling to the true vine so that you may grow with him. And only then can you achieve your true potential. Without Christ you will wither. If anyone does not abide in me, he is cast out as a branch and is withered. And they gather them and throw them into the fire and they are burned in verse 6. Now, as Jesus talks about taking away dead branches, he's not talking about Christians getting lost. The, the illustration doesn't look at that at all. It simply says that if you do not cling to Christ, you will be destroyed. You will not be part of him. If you're not joined to Christ as a branch is to the vine, there's no life in you. There's no spiritual strength. There's no vigor. You've never had that place if you haven't been joined to Christ. You know, you see a vine and you're in a garden in the forest, you tear a branch off it. What happens to that branch? 
it dries up, dies. And you know, even if you glue it back to the vine, doesn't matter how good a gluer you are. I've learned to do a gluing pretty well. But it doesn't matter how good you are. You can't glue it back in such a way that that branch will live. It's dead. It's gone without Christ in this illustration. It's what happens to everybody who does not belong to Christ. Even if they are accepted in the visible church, if people assume they're part of God's people, if you do not have Christ, you'll be thrown in the brush pile to be burned in the end. But God's cutting knife is not just to remove unbelievers. God also takes those of you who are believers and cuts away the evil that's in you. This applies to those who bear fruit, to those who are real Christians. The father, the vine dresser, does not just take away the dead wood. The context shows him pruning a vine. The word itself says he purifies it, he cleanses it. He purifies us by taking away what is dead in us. He also purifies us by cutting back what's growing in unfruitful ways. Leon Morris wrote, left to itself, a vine will produce a good deal of unproductive growth. For maximum fruitfulness, extensive pruning is essential. This is a suggestive figure for the Christian life. The fruit of Christian service is never the result of allowing the natural energies and inclinations to run riot. We grow grapevines. We never manage to harvest the grapes because the birds get to them first, but we grow grapevines. And to get good growth, every year we have to cut them back practically to the beginning. We cut them back to the main stalk, all the little branches brushing off. And every year they grow 30 or 40 feet and provide a real nice sun canopy over our deck where we're sitting. Very solid, very quickly, no problem. But we've got to cut them away back. So they grow the way we want them to. Productive spirituality has to be directed in God's ways. There are problems with those who get enthused and run off to serve God. Whenever, whatever inspiration strikes them, they, you know the people, you've seen them. They get an idea and say, let's go do that. And away they go. They don't stop to think about it. They don't plan. They just go and say, this must be from God. It's, it's, I, I didn't think of myself. It must be from God and go and do it or try to do it. Through such actions, a great deal of vigor is directed to waste. And events and organizations and ceremonies are set up that use resources but don't further the kingdom. Left to itself, a vine will put much of its resources into growing longer and wider and leafier. And that takes away from growing fruit to get good tomatoes. You know, the tomatoes are growing. You pinch off late buds so that the plant will concentrate its vigor on the growing the tomatoes that have been established and are growing. You may, without that, get more tomatoes, but they'll be little wee, tiny, probably not very sweet tomatoes because there are too many for that vine to carry. And so God prunes you. He works in you and takes away the parts in you that are not directed in his service. He takes away from you the things that lead you astray in different ways. He directs your activities in his way. Jesus purifies you. You are already clean through the word which I have spoken to you. Jesus tells us he's not suggesting that his people are ultimately impure. 
that the Father is still purifying us. In Christ, you have full cleansing. He doesn't say you are partly clean. He says you're clean. Your guilt is removed in God's sight when God looks at you as a Christian, as one who loves Christ. He sees you as if you were Christ, pure, because Christ has paid for all your failures, all your sin. In, in doing that, in coming to Jesus, he removed from you everything which would bar you from clinging to him, clinging to the, tr- to the true vine. You have life because you are now grafted into Christ and being fed by him. But you still need to be trained to grow in the direction he wants. That's one of the reasons God tells us to go to church regularly, so we can encourage another and challenge one another and rebuke one another. Look at Hebrews 10. 24 and 25 talk about that. God's word works through the power of God himself. He rebukes your sin. He directs you in the ways of God. He teaches you to obey Jesus Christ. The purity which Christ has set in your heart needs to grow and spread until it completely fills your actions. It's your Lord who enables you to do good. Without me, you can do nothing, verse 5. Without Christ, you're spiritually dead. Without Christ, you'll have no desire to please God. That means you'll have no desire for ultimate good. But if you abide in Christ, you will do much good. You'll bear much fruit. It may not be what you thought you might do at an earlier time. It may, may not be your great target, but you will bear the fruit he wants you to bear. He'll strengthen you and direct you in the ways of good and build you. Finally, as you bear fruit, you enjoy Christ's blessing. In Christ, you find acceptance with God. So your prayers will, will be granted. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, you will ask what you desire and it shall be done for you in verse 7. Now, if you're thinking about it, you'll ask, How can he make that kind of a promise? You know, surely every one of us will pray for things that are wrong in God's sight. Is he going to give us that? What happens when the church prays for dry weather for the church picnic and the farmers pray for rain for their crops? You know? The problem here is our understanding of what it is to abide in Christ. Abiding in Christ does not mean saying, I trust in Christ and then I go on and do my own way, every my own, my own thing. It means clinging to Christ and to his word. You might stress the words Jesus ended that with, and he said, and my words abide with you in verse 7. Abiding in Christ means that you're allowing his word to shape you, to direct you, to show you what is his way. And that means that you will ask for what is pleasing to God more and more as you grow close to Christ. This is where the, what's being called the prosperity gospel goes wrong. There are people who will say, take some of these promises in, for prayer and say, ask what you want and you'll get it so you should be rich. God never will, will be, because God has promised he will give us what we ask for. But they don't understand that if the mind of God, if his word shapes your prayer, 
then you're not going to pray for a million dollars for yourself. You'll be praying for the things that God wants, not for riches to satisfy your own desires. Your prayer for yourself will be, as in the Lord's Prayer, give me today my daily bread. And let your kingdom come in this world. See Christ's directions. He says, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. Abiding in Christ is obedience. It's like the child's game of follow my leader. Do they still play that? Do you kids still play follow my leader? They did when I was a kid. I'm sure most of us have played it at one time or another. And you know, uh, the thing is, the, the leader and everybody has to follow in the same track. And of course, as kids, what the leader tries to do is something that the others are going to find very hard to do. Make it hard for them to do it. Because we love Christ, we follow our leader or try to follow our leader. You know, if Jesus goes right and you go left, then you leave him. You're not abiding in him anymore. Jesus sets us the example of perfect obedience. It's only as you obey that you walk in the path of God's blessing, that you walk in the path of Christ. And Christ's joy will then fill you with joy. He rejoices in your deeds, in your love. And his joy flows into you. You're connected to him as a branch to a vine. You know, the, the sap goes from the vine into the branch. Jesus says, these things I have spoken to you, that my joy may remain in you and your joy may be full. That's a big thing. Note that we experience his joy. He's the infinite God. And the experiences that can be full, that it will overflow in us. Calvin wrote, he adds, that this joy will be substantial and full. Not that believers will be completely free from all sadness, but that the ground for joy will be far the greater so that no fear, no anxiety, no grief will ever swallow them up. For those to whom it has been given to glory in Christ, will not be prevented by life or by death or by any miseries from triumphing over sadness. He gives us joy in every situation. It's a very simple rule we're being given. To live as a Christian, you have to keep your connection to your root in Christ. You have to abide in Christ. Without him, you can do nothing truly good. Without him, you're cut off from God. If there are any of you here who have not yet turned to trust in Christ, to cling to him, there's no better to do that, time to do that than to do it right now. If you don't know what that means, talk to me afterwards or to one of the others whom you know who does know. Come to him. Put your trust in him. and Find his joy. Abiding in Christ will mean living by his word. Because if, he's, if you're in him, he'll direct you in that way, obedience is your way of drawing close to him. And that's the fruit the Father wants from you, that you obey him. When you do that, you will express the full potential of your life. And as you obey, you'll find him, you're, that you are walking on the path of blessing. As you're with Christ, you're in the path of blessing. You'll be so much in tune with God that he gives you whatever you ask him, because you'll ask him the things that he approves. 
You'll be so filled with his joy that the worst trial can't take it from you. You read some of the stories of the martyrs imprisoned in terrible torture, and there you can practically hear them laughing with joy in their pain. When you give yourself to the glory of God, you will find such blessing as you could never hope to attain when you seek to go your own ways. Let's pray. Father, we're very easily led astray. There are all kinds of attractive things around in this world, attractive to our eyes at least, that lead us away from you. Help us to look to Jesus and realize that he is more attractive than all these things that draw us away from him. Help us each one to love him so much that we want to do the things that please him. So help us to discover what it means to grow as your child, to be able to accomplish what you've made us able to do, to know your joy. We pray for any here who don't know you, that you will touch their hearts. He will show them that the goals they set for themselves are small and ultimately painful compared to the wonder of what you offer them. Draw them to Christ, to know him, to cling to him, to experience his joy. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now lift your hearts to God to receive his blessing and depart in peace. The Lord grant that your light may break forth like the morning. May your righteousness go before you and the glory of the Lord be your rear guard. The Lord answer when you call upon him. May he guide you continually. May he satisfy your hunger and drought and strengthen your bones and cause you to flourish like a watered garden. May the Lord grant that your delight be ever in him and that you share in his heritage forever. Amen.